We particularly welcome here today Lady Smith, who, as Christian Carnegie, came to St Anne's in 1948 and whose life's work is the inspiration for this year's seminar topic. She studied English language and literature here and met her late husband, John Smith, who was reading history at New College. They married in 1952, and their partnership of shared interests led to the founding of the building preservation charity, the Landmark Trust, which celebrated 50 years last year. Christian... Christian has not only been a benefactor of St Anne's, but because of the landmark collection, has saved for us all upward of 200 buildings, astonishing buildings, which otherwise might have been lost. Lady Smith, it is an honour and a delight to greet you again today. (laughs) We should also... Not at all. We we should also now like to welcome our contributors to this seminar. Dame Helen Gorsch, Director General of the National Trust, has kindly agreed to act as chair and will introduce her esteemed colleagues and this year's 2016 St Anne's Society Seminar. Over to you, Helen. Thanks very much, Maureen. Well, um, I have to admit, first of all, I am an interloper. I am an interloper because I'm a St. Hughes girl. Um, of course, I now share this privilege, this honour, with the new Prime Minister, uh, who was in red geography uh, in the year below me. I was a modern historian. But I'm here. The reason I'm here is that my husband, Peter Ghosh, uh, is one of the modern history fellows here, uh, which is why the association, I think, lit upon me, and I'm absolutely delighted uh, to be here today. Um, we've got this rather long, cumbersome title, um, but it's what one might call compendious, I think. Um, it will give us a wonderful opportunity, um, and I think that's, you'll, you'll, uh, as you'll hear, reflected uh, in the topics that are going to be covered uh, by our panellists today, a wonderful opportunity to talk about all sorts uh, of aspects of heritage and how we deal with it uh, in this country. Um, When the four of us were having a a kind of uh, pre-telephone conference to sort of try and work out who was going to talk about what and what the themes were, and this is in no way, I have to say, in no way trying to guide uh, the conversation uh, after the talks, uh, because knowing the intelligence and perspicacity and persistence of St Anne's uh, alumni, uh, I'm not going to try and control the questions at all, but uh, when we thought about what we... Uh, felt to be some of the key issues here. Um, I suppose there were four areas um, that came to our minds, and you'll hear these, I think, picked up in the talks. Uh, The first one is, of course, the $64,000 question about what is heritage um, and who decides what it should be. Um, I'm always struck. I took over as uh, Director General of the National Trust almost four years ago. It's flown by. Um, after 30-odd years in uh, government uh, as a senior civil servant, latterly. Um, But when I'm telling the story of the National Trust, which, of course, is an organisation... I imagine I have one or two National Trust members in the audience today. Uh, But when I tell the history 
uh, of the National Trust at supporters' associations and events. Um, even long-term members, our many life members, are kind of astonished to learn that actually we didn't have any grand houses. We had no stately homes until really the late 1930s, 1940s. Our founders, Octavia Hill and Robert Hunter uh, and others, were all about green space. Heritage for them was natural heritage, was green spaces, particularly for the urban poor. And insofar as they ever collected houses, uh, with a couple of exceptions before the Second World War, they were kind of oldie-worldy, um, kind of merry England kind of places. They, weren't, they would have been astonished. Octavia, I think, would be completely astonished that the thing we're now most famous for um, is our grand houses and our tea rooms and our scones, uh, which some people, uh, including Sir Roy Strong, who you may have seen um, uh, in the press um, uh, recently with his views on me and the National Trust, uh, think is the thing we should really concentrate on. Um, but all of our members will have different views. And in recent years, again, you'll have seen, alongside our long-standing commitment to countryside, to looking after our great houses, to coast, uh, starting to acquire bits of heritage um, that are very different bits of heritage. Um, uh, we have, and I think indeed it was, it was John Smith who, when he was a trustee or possibly a council member at the Trust, was passionate about industrial heritage. So we've got a lot of industrial heritage. We've got canals, we've got windmills. Um, latterly, we've got things like the Beatles' houses in Liverpool. I think 21 of our members re uh, resigned at the disgrace that we should acquire, <laughs> because that's not heritage, is it? Um, and nowadays, we think about what of now should we be uh, uh, collecting. Um, I was having a, a lively conversation with a journalist the other day who was telling us we should buy lots of Art Deco cinemas. Um, and I, what a fun thing that would be uh, to have. So, what is heritage? And I imagine there will be many, many views in this room. How do you get people to engage with heritage? How do you get people... It's still, although I'm sure the percentage here of people who would visit our places, um, engage with heritage, will be 100% plus... How do you get everybody to feel that history, that heritage is relevant to them? Um, it's not just about multiculturalism, of course. Um, I think Brexit gives us a chance to think about this. Is heritage a way, heritage in all its aspects, a way in which we can bring society together, have some kind of common idea of our heritage and where we've come from in a way that isn't at all exclusive? Uh, another strand, which Leanne in particular will, I think, be talking about, is about how regeneration and her sorry, how heritage can play a part in regeneration, uh, and we've seen that in a number of our great cities. So Liverpool, for example, terrific examples of urban regeneration alongside heritage regeneration of all their Grade One listed industrial buildings. So there is a strand um, there uh, which it might be worth exploring. And then, again, that question, which, as a former civil servant, was always, how do you pay for it? Um, and um, I suppose there are always two schools of thought, that you should try and create an economic case for looking after heritage and investing in it, uh, that it brings in tourists, that you can use it for other purposes. And then there's the, what I imagine many of uh, us in this room feel, but there's the intrinsic value of heritage. But how do you fund it? Uh, you can fund it through charitable organisations like ours. You can fund it through the Landmark Trust model, um, uh, which is, of course, a wonderful business model which has saved so many uh, great buildings. We've got, in recent years, uh, our, our lottery-playing uh, uh, fellow citizens have contributed enormous amounts uh, through the Heritage Lottery Fund. Is that the way forward? So, lots of issues about how we, we pay. 
uh, for uh, heritage um, and invest uh, in the broadest sense. Um, we also thought it would be terrific to, to sort of take our minds off our own uh, situation and think of the wider world, uh, which is what Michael Fradley is going to do, talking to us about um, archaeological issues um, around the world that he's been involved in. So raise our sights beyond that. Um, I'm going to leave it to my colleagues to introduce themselves. Uh, everyone's going to talk for about 10 minutes or so. Um, that should leave us plenty of time uh, to have the discussion I'm sure you're all uh, looking forward to. Um, so uh, in, I think it is in this order, um, Caroline Stanford, who is the historian and head of engagement uh, at the Landmark Trust uh, that Maureen uh, was introducing you to earlier, is going to speak first. Then Leanne Hartley, uh, who is... Uh, in fact, you are... A, Caroline, you're a St Anne's alumna. I'm not, I'm afraid. I'm another interloper. Oh, you're I'm another interloper. Jesus alumni. Ah. <laughs> well, we're all here. We're all very supportive. Leanne Hartley and her... Oh, I'm sorry. I was going to say, her lovely daughter is just leaving. But, <laughs> but maybe back. Bring her back. We want her to hear this. Um, Leanne Hartley is uh, a St Anne's alumna. Um, and she has, um, uh, uh, it, it has her own company working in that space between regeneration and heritage. And then Michael Fradley, who is, again, not an alumnus, um, but uh, has academic connections with the college, talking about the wider world. So, Caroline, over to you first of all. Well, thank you very much indeed, Helen. Um, everybody else, thank you for admitting uh, a Turl Street interloper, as I say. <laughs> um, and I'm um, delighted to be here today to use as a springboard, I suppose, for our wider themes, the wonderful work of the Landmark Trust, for whom I've worked for probably, um, well, more than 15 years now. Um, I still see my core role as Landmark's historian, and I'm only the second historian that there's ever been at Landmark. Um, we are essentially a building preservation charity. That oh, could we dim the... Sorry, I'm so sorry, Caroline. Oh, so, are the yes. lights a bit bright now? Does anybody know how to dim them? Tim, do you, could you turn the lighting engineer? <laughs> there we are. Yes. So, landmark in glorious Technicolor. Um, in essence, we are a charity, and that's very important, um, that rescues historic buildings at risk for all to enjoy for holidays. A rather unique sort of social uh, business model. We raise the money for the restoration as a charitable activity. There's no return on investment or whatever. If there's sufficient cultural worth embedded in that building, then we will find a way to raise the money to save it. But then after that, they're let for holidays to everybody so that the access is there for uh, the whole population and the money that is generated by the holidays pays for the maintenance. Um, these uh, images capture a few aspects of our 200 sites that we now care for across Britain. Um, and you see examples from the, from the 17th, 19th um, and 20th centuries here. But equally, we have many much earlier buildings. We are eternally grateful to Christian and her husband, John, for bringing us into existence now 51 years ago. Um, and that was a really enlightened act 
in the grand tradition that we have in Britain of philanthropic and passionate individuals making a difference to heritage, um, unlike other countries where uh, I think we, we, we have a danger of almost taking this for granted. But without the William Morrises, the Octavia Hills, the John and Christian Smiths, heritage in Britain would be a very, very different uh, matter. So the word heritage. I don't really like the word heritage. To me, it's a kind of slightly jargonish, um, slight portmanteau of a word. Um, perhaps it carries an implicit localism, I don't know, you know, that verges into a sense of national identity and so on. And I'd like to sort of almost propose a, a slightly less formal-sounding definition for it, which is that it's the point of intersection between the evidence and relics of the past and our own present lives. And that sense of intersection, I think, is crucial to how we care for our heritage, which I, I will continue to use it as a convenient shorthand term, but how we care for our heritage moving forward into the future. So, um, here is a landmark interior. Um, this happens to be the East Banqueting House at Chipping Camden, uh, a wonderful 17th century banqueting house, all that's left of a once great house that got burnt down during the Civil Wars. And in a sense, it could be any landmark interior. Uh, it happens to be one of my favourite buildings. And I think it captures that sense of... Um, reinvigoration, possible withdrawal for the, from the world even, which possibly one could imagine that historic buildings represent. Um, there are many meanings of heritage. It can be valued property, uh, something that's passed down the generations, um, something that's preserved specially for the nation. And in a sense, we're possibly a bit obsessed being provocative um, I, I participated in a seminar in, in Milan a couple of years ago about conservation in Europe. And the fact that the National Trust has 4.2 million members, I think? 4.5. 4.5. Still, still growing. So that must be, what, more than 7% of the population. Um, you know, 7 8% of the British population is a member of this single heritage organisation. That's amazing. We are more preoccupied and give more of ourselves to heritage, probably than almost any other um, country in the world. And that's in our present lives. However, it's got to be something that invigorates us. To give that level of time and resource and attention, it has to be something that does more than simply preserve in aspic relics of the past. So, heritage to be worthwhile, and this is something we believe very strongly in at Landmark, is that heritage has to inspire our own present lives. And I've shown you here just a few examples from, again, our Landmark world, but really very representative of, if you like, orthodox uh, heritage preservation in Britain. We had, last year for our 50th anniversary, we were thrilled that Anthony Gormley took five of our sites as inspiration for uh, an installation nationally of his work, highlighting what it means to be human 
and what it means to be human in the beautiful natural landscapes and historic sites that we care for. Again, entirely representative of what other heritage organisations are doing in the UK. Um, in this particular instance, you'll see the Gormley work standing on the parapet of our Martello Tower in Oldborough in Suffolk. The image top right for you, <laughs> sorry, I have that, always have that moment of, uh, of dyslexia over right and left, um, is our, one, part of our golden weekend that celebrated our 50th anniversary. And here's one little tiny building that we've rescued on the, on the south coast. In that instance, at Clavel Tower, we actually dismantled it and moved it back from the crumbling edge of the cliff. Completely mad, isn't it? <laughs> um, and I don't know that it's anything we'd ever do again, but there was sufficient local and national belief that this little building was worth saving for Landmark to be able to raise the money. And here at our 50th Open Day, you can see the hundreds of people who turned out to celebrate that. Interesting. <laughs> Then, similarly, for the, for the younger generation, how we um, enthuse and bring to life our sites for children so that they continue to care for the built heritage as we do. And, I mean, the, I think those two examples speak to themselves, speak for themselves of um, children putting heart and soul into um, living and enjoying their interpretation, their take on the past. And that's part of future legacy, um, as well, that we are connecting forwards as well as backwards with our treatment of the past. There are other ways, too. The previous slide really talked about sort of leisure and enjoyment of heritage sites, but there's a great deal more to it than that. Um, something that I carry permanently on my shoulders as a member of the project team on many of Landmark's rescue uh, projects is the sense of responsibility one has as the curator-presenter of historic fabric. And you see us up on the, the scaffold there puzzling over what to do with a window that we've just discovered that we didn't know was there. And how does that impact upon the restoration project that's already in train at that building? There is a huge sense of responsibility in deciding how to present these things. There's also a strong need to transmit traditional craft skills. These two um, young men here are Heritage Lottery-funded apprentice craftsmen learning how to rub soft bricks at a, a, an 18th-century folly in Bedfordshire that we, that we rescued. Uh, and that kind of forward transmission and training is incredibly important as a spin-off from the work that we do in preserving heritage. Down here, we've got a gang of volunteers helping to repoint the curtain wall at Astley Castle, which I'll, I'll mention again in a moment. Um, so, again, that's a sort of a sense of onward transmission of craft skills. And I love the, the final example, a purely spontaneous moment, on a, a school's visit, uh, again coincidentally at Astley Castle, and this builder, who probably shouldn't have sat down and talked to the children, he probably had other things to do, but you can see the sense of human connection there, of uh, you know the, the, the experienced builder just sitting down and capturing that little boy's imagination. Who knows 
where and what that little boy will end up doing now. Um, so our, if it's to be meaningful, the her our heritage has to be able to transmit things onwards um, in a very, very human, immediate and personal way. Another aspect of our work, and, and one that I know um, Leanne will be picking up on very much later, is heritage as, as a catalyst for change. John Smith, I think, was enormously prescient in, he, in his founding of the Landmark Trust. Not only did he have that light bulb moment of perhaps people will pay to stay in these buildings for holidays and enjoy and be invigorated by them, but he also used the private trust fund that was backing us in those early days for some really seminal projects of regeneration and, and pioneering um, projects of regeneration. I've chosen um, just one here, which is North Street Cromford, here at the top. Back in the 1970s, this uh, little terrace, there's actually a, a matching terrace, terrace across the road. So they're two identical terraces of cottages. And they were built by Richard Arkwright in about 1770 when he started his Cromford Mill. And these were the homes he built for his workers. Fast forward 200 years to 1970, and most of the cottages were very dilapidated. Derbyshire County Council wanted to demolish them. Another um, uh, lobbying organisation, I suppose, the Ancient Monuments Society, got involved to lobby for their preservation, and Sir John became involved with them, and a deal was, to cut a very long story short, <laughs> a deal was brokered whereby Landmark would buy a certain number of the, the buildings in the street restore them, let them for people to live in, and keep one building, number 10, which is the second one in, in the photograph, as a landmark trust holiday let for people to experience what it's like to stay in actually the very nice cottages that Richard Arkwright built for his workers. And Christian told me a lovely story on the way here. I was chuntering about the word heritage and saying, hmm, you know, I don't think it's a word, a word that people really use in everyday life. I don't think, you know, it's not part of our normal vocabulary. And Christian said, well, it's funny you should say that, because I remember when we were investigating North Street Cromford, John and I went up and we were, we were knocking on the doors to, um, to, to talk to the people who lived there. And a little old lady opened a door and, um, and said, you know, and, and what do you want? Uh, and Christian's Yorkshire accent was much better than the one, or Derbyshire accent, than the one I'm going to be able to give you. But anyway, we can picture the scene. And so Christian explained that, well, you know, they would, they'd, they'd come to look at the history of the buildings and to, to, to see, um, you know, to understand the context of the place. And the little old lady had said, oh, I, heritage, I know. So... From that point of view, heritage as a word probably is one that's used in everyday context, and certainly by the little old inhabitant on North Street. So Landmark, with the, working with the Ancient Monument Society, stepped in, was able to help regenerate this street. Today, Cromford is part of the Derwent Valley World Heritage Site, and this pair of terraces are uh, protected... Uh, within that World Heritage Site. Without the intervention of 
landmark and the ancient monuments society, that these streets would have been demolished. And yet what embedded value we would have lost there, both in a cultural sense and as valuable accommodation. The other buildings shown here, uh, the, one, the other one at the top is a house in Spitalfields, one of the most fantastic examples of a regenerated area in London. This one we didn't save, but it's now in our care. This again was saved by an individual, a man called Peter Lurwell, wonderful man who supported Spitalfields in many, many different ways, and he bequeathed it to Landmark, so we keep his, his legacy and contribution alive, um, as indeed that of the Spitalfields Trust, and anyone who's been to Spitalfields recently knows what an incredibly vibrant place it is. And below is Astley Castle. I don't know whether it's a familiar building for anyone, but this was a conservation restoration project by Landmark to introduce contemporary accommodation into the shell of a ruined fortified manor. Um, a very sort of bold, nerve-wracking, ground-breaking initiative on our part. And it won the 2013 Sterling Prize for Architecture for the most influential building of the year in British architecture. Now, you may or may not feel that that was worthwhile. It may, you know, that will depend on, on, on the, the context of the year and so on. But for the conservation world, for the heritage world... It's quite amazing that a project like this, a, a, a building preservation project, should be considered the most influential building of the year. And we were astounded. <laughs> we were thrilled to make the short list. We had nothing prepared at all for winning <laughs> in terms of press release or whatever. Uh, but it's an example of how not only a different approach can bring something really fresh and new to a historic building, but also in the locality where it sits, it's transformed the local community in terms of their own involvement with heritage. And that, again, is a heritage, fund, heritage lottery-funded project. And sort of leading on from that, this is my last slide before I, before I hand over, but leading on to that, something we do need to consider this afternoon, and I hope we'll debate later, is this sense of heritage as burden. What Landmark does and we're lucky enough to have found a way to do it, is turn millstones into gems and, and, and enable buildings at risk to play an active and invigorating part in today's Britain. But there are many, many buildings that are not finding that kind of a solution. And I've rather shamelessly lifted this case study, which I, w I, I will sketch and won't go into in too much detail, but from another sister organisation, Save Britain's Heritage. This is Lime Street in Liverpool, and it's been a long-running campaign by Save to prevent the developers from stripping away this historic frontage, um, the futurist cinema here, possibly the journalist who was bending Helen's ear, I don't know. Well it might well have been, <laughs> by, by pure yeah. coincidence, exactly. Um, so, and, so this was built in 1912. Then, cinema was the future. Yeah. And this is, a, this is a really good representative example of a purpose-built building for something that absolutely summed up 
that particular period. I mean, another one Landmark's grappling with at the moment are railway signal boxes. They're no longer needed. So what, do, you know, do we mind that there might not ever be any more signal boxes? You know, that's a question for debate. Um, Lime Street, however, to return to that, uh, the futurist cinema in particular is a particularly outstanding example of its time and of its type. Uh, it's set within a frontage of many other historic buildings, part of the pleasant and varied streetscape that personifies so many of our towns and cities. It's the entrance to uh, the World Heritage Site, St George's Hall here. Liverpool is a World Heritage Site. Liverpool is also on the UNESCO list of World Heritage Sites at risk. And the developers propose, and have now, as of an appeal court ruling in August, got permission to demolish the whole of this historic frontage and replace it with this. So this becomes the gateway, if you like, to the World Heritage Site at the centre of this amazing city. SAVE have campaigned fiercely, and many others have campaigned fiercely to save it. Um, this, along the bottom, was an alternative scheme um, that was commissioned in outline by SAVE from, from a, a conservation architect to provide all the facilities that this sleek modern frontage was going to, going, to, going to provide. So all the things that this is doing could have been incorporated into the existing buildings. And this montage are people watching the demolition of the futurist cinema. So another question we might think about is who, who does heritage belong to? I would say it belongs to all of us. And what all of us have to decide is, do we simply stand by? I mean, these, these may have been active, uh, active lobbyists, so I, um, you know, they're, they're, they're merely represented. They are, they are standing watching in this particular instance. But do we stand by? And do we prefer to move to um, unambiguously modern architecture and structures in their entirety? Or do we prefer to continue to try and stitch together our past and our present in a way that gives us uh, an inspiring and invigorating way to move forward to the future? So on that note, I think I should... I think I've said enough. <laughs> so, Can you yes. put the holding slide on? Yes, indeed. Lovely. I'm not sure anyone can see me beyond the back row. I'm so short. So I might stand here if that's all right. Can you still pick me up? Um, thank you very much. That was so interesting and, and picks up on a lot of the themes that um, I'm probably going to develop on in, in what I'm going to say next. I don't have any slides, so forgive me if I don't uh, uh, illustrate any of the points that I'm making. Um, but I wanted to start with the fact that um, I was uh, at St Anne's between 96 and 99. And I, I, I was inspired by the advent of New Labour, which was my very first vote cast as an 18-year-old back in the early days of, of my youth. 
And what inspired me about New Labour was their commitment to regenerating Britain's cities. Um, I grew up in Cardiff uh, as a great city, a city that um, always inspired me to, to, to learn more about how cities work and how we can reproduce cities and how fundamental it is um, to, to feel that sort of personal connection to a city. So when I got to uh, St Anne's, um, I actually went from being a physical geographer, obsessed with rocks and rivers, uh, to very much a human geographer and, and very concerned about how cities are made and cities are remade. Um, so upon leaving university in 1999, at the height of New Labour's sort of uh, popularity and, and exuberance, uh, I immediately uh, threw myself into a career in urban regeneration, which to me just, just felt like the right thing for me to be doing. Um, and I'm, I was horribly disappointed, fast forward to sort of 10 years later, when all of the kind of youthful optimism and excitement uh, instilled in me in, in how Labour wanted to regenerate our cities and, and put energy back into them and give them the resurgence they needed after decades of underinvestment, uh, I realised, to, to my horror, that actually what they, what they meant by regeneration was far from changing people's lives and, and, and injecting energy back into these places. It was really a quite cynical uh, attempt at raising land values. It was that simple. I spent the, the early part of my career, 15 years, working in East London, um, in areas which are now kind of comfortably regenerated as part of the Olympic project. Um, and what struck me as being quite, quite awful was how promises were being made in, in various consultation exercises, planning exercises, about how, you know, the very fact of building new things, shiny, shiny new things, whether it's a new hospital, new housing, um, by the very nature of just doing that, it would transform communities. And it became very quickly apparent to me in working on these projects that actually it was a very, very cynical attempt at just regurgitating and recycling the same old thing. And when you actually got on the ground and you spoke to people living in these areas, very little was changing. Very li little impact was being made. In fact, in many cases, these places were deteriorating in their eyes. No change was being seen whatsoever, certainly not in a positive sense. So with that, with that sense of disappointment, it got to 2010, and I realised uh, that I'd spent a good part of my career living a little bit of a lie. Um, and I felt I needed to put my money where my mouth was. So I decided to quit my job uh, at the two years into a recession and start a business with no funding and no experience, um, which was a mad thing to do, um, but also a very exciting and liberating thing to do. Um, I set up a company called Mend, which, was, which is a social enterprise. And the purpose and motivation for the social enterprise is to enable people in any community to have a greater level of involvement uh, and decision-making in local decisions about urban development. Um, it came at a time when uh, the then Prime Minister David Cameron uh, was talking about people having a greater level of decision-making over local affairs. And whether that's actually what's happened or not is, is up for debate. Um, but to me, it was a very attractive proposition. I felt that real regeneration and city-making is about people. It's not necessarily about bricks and mortar. It's about that connection that people have. And the word mend isn't a sort of, um, how do I put it, arrogant sense of coming with my cape on to mend your city. It was really about mending people's connection to place, which I felt had been eroded, largely because I felt the built environment as a, as a sector, as a, as a discipline, 
have been over-professionalised. And what I mean by that is to get involved in, in the built environment, to have a say in the built environment, to have an opinion in the built environment, you have to be a professional. And to me, I felt also that was wrong. So sort of park that for a slight, uh, a slight minute. The reason I felt that way is because, as humans, we have a very strong connection to our environment. A sensory connection in terms of sight, hearing, all of those sort of sensory aspects. Uh, but we also have a very emotional connection to our place. Our sense of home is very personal to us. It's very unique. It's very comforting. It's very strong. Um, but you can extrapolate that to other places that you might encounter or use. In fact, whole cities could be described as a social network. It manifests physically, but actually it works as a set of social transactions and interactions. And key to that is a sense of, of anchoring. And when we talk about heritage, when we talk about old buildings, essentially what we're saying is these buildings act as an anchor. They help us have a connection to our past and our collective past, and that helps us have a collective identity. So in crew terms, my issue with regeneration was that it was missing out this entire aspect of our human, emotional, psychological connection <coughs> to place. And I felt that was really important to, to bring back. So I was influenced very strongly by a book by someone called Ian Sinclair, a fellow Cardiffian, who writes um, his very particular style, a very particular type of geographer. He's a psychogeographer, uh, which uh, sounds quite bizarre. Um, but really what, it's, what, it, what it harks to, um, and I won't, I won't go, it's a very murky sort of definition of psychogeography. But effectively what it's about is, is, is it, it's about expanding that connection between the uh, subconscious, the psychological, the emotional experience of being in place. It's, it's about ma marrying together the emotions you feel, the experiences you have, the stories you hear with the place that you're in. So now you understand why it's quite murky. Um, but Ian is very brilliant at evoking a sense of place without you even being in that place. It's really quite remarkable. And if you get a chance to read Hackney, that Rose Empire, it's one of his most seminal works. It's absolutely fabulous. And what he did was he took a corner of London, which until the bearded hipsters moved in, um, was a largely forgotten and, and slightly it had been battered over the years. Hackney was never a, a glamorous place. Um, but he loved it, and he, he lived there for a long, long time. And what he did was he spent his time walking the streets of Hackney. And in doing that, he encountered various characters. He uh, encountered local history in its rawest sense, as in not necessarily official history or formalised history written in history books, for example, uh, but folk history, history of the everyday um, and what he found was this richness, this incredible diversity, and this incredible interest and intrigue that couldn't be found anywhere. Yet it was very, it was completely integral to that community and how it had grown, how it propagated, the buildings that had shaped it, and and in turn shaped the characters in his in the stories that he was collecting. So he found himself being a sort of like geographical folk historian via the built environments, which sounds quite, uh, I suppose, convoluted. Um, but effectively, that's what he was doing. And there are others that do this. Um, there's a brilliant uh, book called Estates by Lin Lindsay Hanley. And she tells the history of the modern housing estate. Uh, and again, far from being banal, far from being stark, depressing, negative, is full of this rich, diverse history of experiences of people that actually live there. So what am I getting at? 
Well, I'm getting a sense that heritage and I don't mean to disrespect anybody when I say this, but I often feel that like history is written by the winners, heritage can often be written about winning buildings. Mm. And I'm not saying anything bad against the buildings that do, again, end up receiving funding or preserved or saved for their heritage value. But it's a shame that, that it has to get to that point. And it's a shame that the value inherent in perhaps not so sexy, glamorous or of historical significant buildings don't necessarily get saved or valued. Um, it, it is a real shame. Um, so my sense is, well, what is, who is heritage for and who decides what is heritage? So to give an example, um, shortly after setting up MEND, um, we encountered very randomly in the street um, somebody who was concerned about a local, what they considered to be a local heritage landmark. Um, and it might surprise you that that local heritage landmark was a piece of street art. And that piece of street art had been painted on the side of a recording studio deep, deep in Hackney. A recording studio that had seen the likes of The Clash, uh, madness, all sorts of fantastic um, musical uh, gems. Um, and somebody had, had, had taken to uh, paint a really beautiful hair on the side, or, or rabbit, I should say, on the side of the recording studio. And it had been there for years. And it had been loved by the community, widely by the community, in fact. Um, and far from being seen as a piece of vandalism, it had been absorbed by the community as a piece of local heritage. Um, and unfortunately, the council saw different and decided to embark on a mission of painting black. So throughout Hackney is a, a plethora of really quite remarkably beautiful street art. Some would say it was not that beautiful. Um, but in, there, was a, there was a significant amount of people that really had loved this rabbit. Um, and when the uh, post started to arrive at the recording studio, lamenting that this rabbit was dirty and effectively contravened the council policy against um, litter, effectively, it was, it was built environment litter, um, uh, they, they were threatened with legal action if they didn't paint over it. It was on their own premises, their own private property. Um, the recording studio said, thank you, but we like the rabbit, we're keeping it. And to cut a long story short, uh, it, 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 it erupted into a, a, a full-blown um, dispute. Um, so we got involved because a petition has been started um, locally to save the Hackney Rabbit. And because the recording studio had a lot of friends, influential in the music business, it, it spread like wildfire, and it actually made the Channel 4 news. Um, so now the council were under quite a lot of pressure to uh, act favourably or act positively in light of this negative um, uh, publicity. So we were approached to try and broker uh, a, a civilised conversation between the recording studio, the community and the council to see if a compromise could be made. We called a public meeting. Uh, we were delighted that so many members of the community had come along and some councillors. Um, and what transpired was remarkable because what the council hadn't realised was that this, this piece of street art was effectively local heritage. Um, and as a result of that meeting and the subsequent conversations that took place, the council actually changed their policy and their approach um, because they'd received similar outrage um, from their approach to painting over other pieces of street art, notably a Banksy on Stoke Newton Church Street, which was also on private property and received the sanction of the owner for that piece of street art to be painted. Um, so I suppose what that um, example spoke to me of 
was that actually it's it's very it's very finely nuanced what local heritage is and unless we have an ability to really properly consult with communities about what they value then it's very difficult to avoid the sort of scenarios that that were just painted uh, for us right there in terms of losing local heritage that actually has may may not have formal recognition as being landmark or heritage but nonetheless plays a massively important part to local community identity um, but how do we do that? It's a very subjective um, thing. Um, it's people's opinions and, and emotions that we're talking about here. So, um, in a sense, my role uh, and men's role, really, is to act as, as a broker for, for those sort of conversations. We like to describe ourselves as seeing the community as a client, um, not just a bystander for regeneration or planning or decision-making, but actually a key player, a key stakeholder. Um, but I appreciate fully that, that this is a, a, an area fraught with um, emotion and emotive responses. Um, so that, that's what I was really going to say. That's brilliant. Sort of Thank say. you so much. Okay. And I'm so glad the rabbit survived. It did survive. <laughs> it's there. If you want to see it. It. Thank you very much. And lastly, Michael, to raise our eyes to the wider world. Thank you, Helen, and uh, yes, thank you uh, for the invite to join this discussion today. Um, uh, I'm not, the, uh, as we said before, I'm not alumni of any college, but I am at the School of Archaeology uh, here at Oxford. Um, and I'm here to talk to you today about a project that began uh, in January 2015, so we have not been going particularly for a particularly long time, um, called the Endangered Archaeology of the Middle East and North Africa Project, generously funded by uh, the Arcadia Group. Um, you've already heard this joke, but uh, I have to point out that it's not the Arcadia group of um, uh, Philip Green fame. It's a different Arcadia group, much nicer. Um, and they fund both uh, quite a large team here at the University of Oxford and a small team at the University of Leicester, and due to be another small team uh, at the University of Durham, um, with the project running to 2020. It's headed by Andrew Wilson uh, here at Oxford, and our director, Robert Bewley, uh, and David Mattingly in Leicester. So, as we, we discussed in our original kind of talk about what we would do today, I mean, it was very hard for what I am about to talk about to fit in with what has been spoken about today, which is very much a, a UK orientated uh, discussion. But many of the themes kind of still exist in terms of the role of heritage in, in developing and also maintaining identity, in developing a, a sense of place. Um, but really what we're moving from a point where this seminar is to discuss you know, heritage as a, a general millstone to a, a scenario where you don't even really get to make that choice. Uh, there are processes going on in which heritage is a, an innocent bystander. And I'm particularly talking about archaeological heritage, but also aspects of um, architectural heritage. In fact, I wouldn't really want to um, squeeze it into the bracket of just being archaeological heritage. So our project is funded uh, to produce... There are two kind, of key th two kind of key parts of the project. The first is that we're to produce an open access database of archaeological sites uh, and their heritage condition uh, across this um, ridiculously large region running from Mauritania all the way through to Iran, taking in many conflict zones, disputed areas such as... Um, Western Sahara, 
uh, a very difficult landscape. Um, and to produce uh, a system that is open access to allow anyone with access to the internet in theory uh, to access the information that we are producing, uh, but also to feed this through to the state organisations of uh, these countries where possible to help inform their own decision-making uh, compared to, let's say, English heritage uh, here in England. Um, these state institutions are often um, very poorly funded, very poorly equipped. Um, throughout my talk, lots of kind of ethical questions will come up. Um, I'm not going to discuss them in too much detail. And, but basically, if you hear, hear anything I say and think, well, oh, that's an ethical issue, I assure you that we have thought about it and had hour-long meetings uh, within our team, very heated, in which someone has probably cried, um, usually me. Um, so it's, uh, so, but obviously this can come through yeah. to the Q&A afterwards. The other aspect of how we are doing this, obviously access to so many of these countries is very difficult. Ultimately, there's a situation where a bunch of academics in UK institutions are trying to do this so that there are, there are obvious... Um, implications in terms of uh, how valid is it that we uh, involve ourselves with the heritage of another country. And that comes back to something that um, Caroline said about how heritage is often used in an almost kind of a national, well not nationalist, but in the context of a, of a nation and its identity. Um, I mean, that's very much the, the, the origins of you know, archaeology's discipline. Um, but we're moving into a new age, and that's where we come to the second part of our project, and how are we looking at this? And really the key thing is satellite imagery um, and how that is changing the way that we can look at archaeology but look at the globe and the way that the globe is changing. Um, straight away we're into another ethical issue, satellite imagery. Its origins are as a spying technology which have very difficult connotations uh, across this region, particularly in the Middle East. Um, but the, world, you know, the digital world is changing very rapidly and we suddenly have access to uh, satellite imagery particularly through um, pub, you know, public domain uh, sources such as Google Earth, which are changing the way that we can look and that we can monitor and understand the world. And in many respects, as I'll get to at the end of my talk, it's allowing us to look at landscapes archaeologically that have, have never been looked at before and, and make some quite remarkable discoveries. So I'm going to talk to you. Many of the issues that affect the heritage of these regions are very similar to those that we encounter in the UK. Some are very different. The project began out of really, um, well, we were approached by Arcadia at one point, but the, the, the kind of uh, the physical kind of ideas that came about were really from, um, you can see the logo on the top of Apami, which is um, an aerial photograph archive for the Middle East. Um, but our director, Robert Bewley, but also um, Professor David Kennedy, who had an earlier link to the project, for, for decades now have been running... Um, aerial surveys in Jordan uh, using the Royal Jordanian Air Force to run helicopter flights over the region. And really it was a research project where they were looking for archaeological sites, but it began to dawn on them just within the last two decades how the landscape was changing so rapidly and how that archaeological heritage was being lost you know, so rapidly. Um, and so that was kind of pushing them. So our project, although it has a, you know, a, lot, a huge research potential, it is really about heritage management. It's about collecting data of sites and their condition and what's changing. So I'm going to run through um, not a particularly pleasant uh, group of slides showing you some of the examples of what we're seeing. And obviously, you'll all be aware, of, in terms of what's coming out in the media, particularly over the last two years, in terms of what's happening 
particularly in Syria and Iraq, in terms of fundamentalist destruction of heritage sites and the destruction of heritage sites in, in conflict. In reality, that's a very small thing within much uh, much more common process of how our agriculture in particular affects archaeology, and that's much the same as in the UK. You know, the deep ploughing of sites often don't need to be involved in any sort of uh, planning uh, decisions um, are the kind of key destruction of archaeological sites. So here you see um, areas of orchard cutting over this, I think, uh, Roman settlement site. Uh, this is in Jordan, so this was taken by the um, Aerial Archaeology in Jordan team. Uh, we see urban expansion, again, a huge thing. This is from uh, Egypt, where you see the circus site uh, with the settlement encroaching. And Google Earth, in particular, is changing the way we can do things. Let's not walk away from the microphone. Uh, because we get time slides, so we're able to see from 2005 to 2014 in this occasion. You can purchase satellite imagery, but it's incredibly expensive. So really is down to, to, to groups such as Google Earth allowing us to, to take these new perspectives and to really monitor change on the ground. Um, so much like in the UK that we're seeing uh, certain urban environments constantly expanding discussions at the moment in terms of do we, do we start moving on to the green belt? Is that an issue? Those, you know, in terms of local communities, those, those decisions aren't, you know, they are not made. Uh, they do not involve uh, local communities at any level, really, in the Middle East and North Africa. Uh, here we see um, prospecting in Saudi Arabia, where we have 2D seismic um, prospection. Cutting over this is a, a desert kite site, where they were named kites by early um, airmen who flew over them and saw these enclosures. This enclosure, oops, sorry, I'm pressing the wrong button. This enclosure with these strings, which were, we believe were to guide game who were being hunted in here to this lovely kill zone uh, at the end of the kite, which doesn't sound quite as nice as a kite. Um, and so here we see this, this 2D seismic prospection, which occurs over you know, 50 kilometer squares in this occasion. So we see massive destruction of archaeological sites just in the, in the kind of everyday process of, uh, of life, of, of the economy as it develops. Uh, here we see kind of more uh, meaningful destruction in terms of looting in the case of Apamea in Syria. Uh, again, monitoring change from 2013 to 2012, where we see a tell site and probably lots of associated features. You see all the built features beside the tell. And then obviously each one of these small pits is a looting pit. So you can see the, the rate of change that can occur on sites. And also you have, this is an agricultural landscape in which damage was already occurring in terms of uh, the ploughing of the site. Here's an example from the eastern desert of Egypt where a massive multinational mining firm has moved in and what was a, a really interesting uh, mining settlement running from at least the New Kingdom through to the, what we would term the early Arab period. And we see this modern development of a mining corporation you know, completely demolishing. What, what few elements of the site remain are going to be highly contaminated. And again, this is... I mean, this is, this is legal in terms of this, you know, the, the Egyptian government have allowed this to go, to go ahead but there's been no monitoring of the, uh, the heritage of the site of, of what was a, a fantastic gold mining site has been almost entirely lost uh, in a very short period um, in around 2010 uh, and here's an example of what we're then seeing going on in the wider landscape in this top slide from I think 2011 you can see various structures from the site elements of mining remains and then we move to this, this watershed year of 2012 where bulldozers move in, 
coming back in 2013, and by 2016, the landscape completely changed. And not just the historic environment, uh, the way this is changing, the very, I mean, these are very desolate desert regions, the way that uh, this will then affect the hydrology uh, of the site, you know, completely unknown, and this is kind of going on without any real monitoring from the, you know, the, the state groups who would usually monitor changes to uh, both the natural and the archaeological environment. I mean, part of our project is also to, to work with the, the state authorities, as I said, but in this case, you know, the Ministry of Antiquities in Egypt has no idea of what was going on in the Eastern Desert. I mean, they're under a huge amount of pressure in terms of uh, their interests you know, are forced, have, um, have been forced to be about the kind of the, the, the tourist sites, of particularly of the Nile uh, Valley and the Nile Delta, and so they have very little resources to think about these areas like the Eastern Desert, which are largely uninhabited and aren't really kind of a, a destination for tourists and are, are generally quite uh, inaccessible. Uh, and then we get to the issue of conflict. Here's the example of Taiz in um, Yemen, where satellite imagery allows us to monitor how the site was slowly being restored, and then reports are that the site was uh, occupied by militant groups uh, and was then bombed in the early stages of the recent campaign in Yemen uh, and largely levelled. Um, again, the, the, the conflict-related damage is in the minority in terms of uh, what we are seeing on the ground. As our project started, we did get a lot of media attention because uh, people wanted to hear about these events, but unfortunately our narrative, which was largely about how there was a much larger issue in terms of the unregulated management of the, uh, the, the historic environment across the Middle East and North Africa. It didn't really chime with what the media wanted to hear in terms of civilization is over and um, it's all going to pot. Um, so we generally landed, ended up on the, the cutting room floor for many of the programmes that we spent all day filming. Um, and we also had that, that issue of fundamentalist destruction. Uh, we all have probably read in the media about sites such as Palmyra in Syria, but our project is also monitoring the, the, those small events that are probably being forgotten. Here is an example again from Yemen, a largely forgotten conflict. It's coming to the media again recently in terms of UK arms sales to mm -hmm. Saudi Arabia. But here we have a, a cemetery site in the middle of a, a relatively nondescript town and then between, I believe this is 2009 and 2013, we see this shrine monument here in the top corner has been uh, levelled. So the project is recording all these events that, that don't make it into the media as well. Um, and as the data begins to come in, it will allow people to start trying to monitor these broader, broader, uh, broader processes in train. I mean, Yemen is an interesting example. Unlike most of the Middle East and North Africa where, as I said, urbanisation and agriculture are, are the big issues. Here in Yemen, because it is quite so poverty-stricken, there is relatively little de development. And in many ways, its heritage is, is, far better, is at a far le better level of preservation, but obviously that is in tow with uh, an unimaginable level of poverty, and that's not really what we want to see. We all agree on these ideas of sustainable development. Um, and it's hoped that our project is providing uh, a platform in which these can be, uh, this can be investigated. Often the data just isn't there. There is no access to that data. We're finding, particularly in countries like Yemen, where you find archaeological sites and, and you have no data about them at all. Um, so we're hoping that our, our project will provide uh, an essential platform in which 
we can start seeing sustainable development. I was at an event in Oxford about two weeks ago, and then someone quite high up in, in Shell happened to walk past, and, and he, was, he was fascinated because, as far as he could see it, large oil companies, who again have a, a major impact in this region, would be very interested in making sure that they, they take on board the historic environment, but they don't have the data. Um, whether that will be a reality on the ground, I don't know, but um, he certainly seemed very nice about it. Uh, so this is giving you an idea of the kind of coverage we have, we have we've been able to uh, make so far with the various countries. But really, we have, we have just kind of scratched the surface. And if you think that aerial uh, photography of archaeology in the UK has been going on for at least 50 years and has only done a small part of the, uh, really looked at a small part of the UK, um, it's quite ridiculous that in five, you know, our project is due to run until at least 2020, that in five years we... I'm fairly sure we will not cover this whole area. Um, it's it's, it's yeah, virtually impossible. But we're hoping that maybe, obviously, funding will continue and it will go on. But we really are changing these environments in terms of the data available. And there are, I said, I think I might have mentioned at the beginning, that there are very few happy endings in this story uh, so far. But that one positive is because we are systematically analysing landscapes in terms of uh, identifying archaeological sites. We're also bringing in as much published data and, and unpublished data as possible into our database. But we are finding uh, a ridiculously large number of archaeological sites that aren't really recorded. This is an example just outside Sada in, um, in Yemen again. A fantastic fortified settlement of some sort on the, on the edge of this cliff. You can see this trackway running up to it. No, no information about this site at all. Um, so although the, the, the database is largely about uh, heritage management, there, is a, there are huge research projects in terms of the, the data we're generating and the landscapes we're allowed to enter. Um, and in terms of what we deem heritage, we've had that issue before about how recent do we go. In terms of being politic, uh, many people uh, would argue that we should only go up to maybe the end of the First World War where things become more contentious. I would probably go a lot more recent uh, in terms of, I mean, I find things like... Cold War heritage, quite fascinating, and obviously that um, is uh, quite a major thing in this region, although there is very little interest. We're also working in, in cases where we can, where we know that there is a planned development of a landscape. So, for instance, there is a planned expansion of Cairo between Cairo and Suez, uh, taking up the large desert area between the two, and that is a landscape with very little kind of traditional archaeology, particularly in, in an Egyptian sense but is littered with uh, the militarised remains of, of features that were, that were created probably between, uh, largely probably between um, the Second and the Third Arab-Israeli War, which are going to be lost uh, without record. And within that, we're also finding fascinating new landscapes that have, have never been identified before, uh, that have a, you know, a much, much older heritage. So we're hoping, uh, well, not hoping, I would, I would argue quite forcefully that our project is is a, a very benign use of, of these kind of multinational tools such as Google Earth to really change the way that heritage can be monitored uh, and how that heritage data can be used to uh, develop the landscape in the future uh, across this region. Um, obviously, it's a huge region, and that largely depends on, on how things go politically. Um, as I said, there are very few happy endings, uh, and we can't really see a happy ending in the, in the, in the near future. But we still have to try. We can't just give up on that basis, as, uh, give up on these, many of these countries as failed states. Uh, we still have to make an impact. And, and really, we come back to that question of nation. You know, should uh, a group of archaeologists in Oxford and Leicester you know, 
when we talk about heritage, are we only able to talk about it at a, in terms of our own state, our own nation, or are we global citizens who can talk about a global heritage? Uh, thank you very much. Thank you.